You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. to the 1,912th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 19th of January 2023. The editor of this edition is Sheila Franklin, the producer is Roger Morris, your readers are Rob Cunningham-Snell and Chris Payne. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. A and E, an ambulance, waits some of the worst on record in Suffolk. Ronald was true champ of Suffolk. Tax reduction given approval by cabinets. And volunteer chef hands back apron after 21 years. A and E waits and ambulance response times in Suffolk and North Essex are some of the worst on record, according to the latest NHS data. Average ambulance response times for the most serious Category 1 incidents in the east of England in December were 11 minutes 54 seconds, well above the England average of 10 minutes 57 seconds, and the second worst in the country behind South Western Ambulance Service. The English, um, the English average is the worst since records began in 2017, and well above the target figure of 7-minute response times to the most serious incidents. At West Suffolk Hospital in December, 606 patients waited for 12 hours or more to be admitted to A&E, while 1,125 waited for four hours or more. In November, the equivalent figure was 399 patients waiting for 12 hours. The NHS has a target to see 95% of patients admitted to A&E in less than four hours. However, a spokesperson for West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust said the majority of the 606 patients were already in A&E, triaged and waiting to be moved to another ward for further care. Nicola Cottington, the Trust's Chief Operating Officer, said, Like many other trusts, we are experiencing sustained and significant demand for our services. We are very sorry we are very sorry to any patient that experiences a delay in their care and our teams are working very hard to ensure patients get the care they need at the earliest opportunity. To help us care for all of those who come through our doors, we are asking the public to get their COVID-19 and flu jabs as well as utilising NHS 111 or their local pharmacy for non-urgent care and advice. Our A&E department is always available for those who need it and we urge those who need our care to attend A&E for serious accidents and emergencies. A much-loved writer who immortalised the East Anglian landscape and lifestyle has died. Ronald Blythe became known as one of the finest contemporary writers of the English countryside with his 1969 novel Aikenfield, regarded by many as a modern classic. He died at his home in Wormingford on January the 14th. Born in the village of Acton on November the 6th, Blythe was the eldest son of six children. It was from his mother, a nurse, that Blythe inherited his love of literature, describing himself as a chronic reader. 
Blythe published his first novel, A Tre- Treasonable Growth, in 1960, and his second, The Age of Illusion, in 1963. Aikenfield, which offered an unsentimental portrait of life in rural Suffolk, stretching from 1880 to 1966, was turned into a film by Suffolk-born National Theatre director Peter Hall. When Mr Hall's film screened on BBC One in late 1974, it was watched by 15 million viewers, prompting another wave of sales for Blythe's novel and confirming its status as a contemporary classic. Blythe continued to write throughout his life, with his final book, Next Nature, a lifetime in the English countryside having been published last November to coincide with his 100th birthday. Worst-off residents in Mid-Suffolk could pay no council tax from April. Mid-Suffolk and Baybrook cabinets have approved a 100% maximum council tax reduction to combat the cost-of-living crisis and administration associated with the current scheme. The year-long change would see an increase in the maximum council tax reduction for people who get legacy benefits or universal credit, which is currently 95%. The council tax reduction scheme will need to be approved by full council before being implemented from April. Councillor Susan Morley, Mid-Suffolk District Council Leader said, This is almost a no-brainer. It costs us far too much to administer the current scheme. This will save officer time and the stress of residents who get council tax letters about small amounts which they often struggle to pay. Almost 60% of council tax reduction recipients get universal credit. The amount they are given through universal credit fluctuates each month and council council tax reduction awards have to be reassessed accordingly. Rather than reviewing eligibility on a monthly basis, the approved scheme involves an automated system based on Department for Work and Pensions data. A six-week consultation of 53 people from Mid-Suffolk and Baybrook last year found 79% in favour of amending the scheme to offer a full reduction. 91% agreed with simplifying the scheme. The consultation included people liable for council tax and advisers for debt problems, such as citizens' advice. A volunteer who has been cooking a food bank's Christmas lunch for 21 years has hung up his pots for the final time. Jim Harrington, 59, cooked his last festive meal for Gatehouse at St Benefit's Catholic School in Bury St Edmunds over Christmas. Jim, who lives in Barrow and works as Group Head of Marketing at TechPoint, began volunteering at the Christmas lunch in 2001 when he was going through a divorce. When Jim volunteered for the first time, the chef, who was meant to be cooking the lunch, was taken ill, and Jim had to step up to the plate. The meal was a success, and Jim has cooked it ever since. He said, I realised I could help out at Christmas, and I probably needed Gatehouse as much as they needed me. Although I was living with my parents, I wanted to do something that was worthwhile. At one stage, Jim became a trustee for the charity, but he ultimately had to give that up, as he was doing a lot of international travel for his job but he continued to give his time to the Christmas meal. For Jim, the best part of his time as chef was making people happy. I've always enjoyed giving back, he said, to see vulnerable people happy, make them smile and give them some company on Christmas Day is a really valuable and humble thing. 
I just liked going round afterwards and seeing smiling people with empty plates. That's always a good thing. Jim has given many years to volunteer work, including a further 21 years to setting up Sporting 87 Football Club's youth team, and after just over two decades with Gatehouse, he has decided to hand over to someone else. I realised that after 21 years I could probably do with a day off on Christmas Day myself, he added. There's lots of people who want to volunteer as well. Let's see if they can grow even further than it is. Amanda Bloomfield, CEO of the charity, said, I just want to say a huge thank you to Jim for his massive commitment to the charity. He's always been great fun to work with and we shall miss him a lot. Jim was a huge part of the Christmas lunch. It's not yet known who will take over the cooking duties of the Christmas lunch will be reviewed in February, a process where the charity discusses what went well and what could be improved for the coming year. The landlord of a Bury St Edward's town centre, Blot on the Landscape shop, is calling for its tenant to undertake repairs and relinquish the lease to allow another business to move in. The owner of the former coral betting shop in Abigate Street has been asking the bookmaker to repair the unit as it is required to do under its lease since the shop closed suddenly about three years ago. The owner, a 75-year-old former chartered surveyor, said Coral located it about three years ago without notifying us and left the premises in a dreadful state of repair. For two and a half years, I've been trying to persuade Coral to do the works as it is obliged under the terms of the lease. Schedules of works have been prepared and quotes received, but he said that Coral had twice agreed to undertake the repairs before later reneging on the agreement. I started to wonder if I should go ahead and get some of the work done, that there is such a huge expense involved, running to five figures. I was advised not to, as I might not be reimbursed by Coral, said the landlord, who has owned the property for 30 years. When I look at the other properties in Abigate Street, they all look smart and well cared for, and then I see mine, and it's a disgrace. Mark Cordell, Chief Executive of Business Improvement District, our Bury St Edmunds, has called for Coral to step up to the mark and address this issue as soon as possible. From my perspective, on behalf of the town, we require the tenant to address this issue, as currently this is a blot on our landscape and is letting down the image of the town centre, he said. It stands out like a sore thumb. Revised plans to turn an outdated former Suffolk shopping centre into flats have been submitted. Knightsbur Homes has submitted plans to transfer the Cornhill Walk shopping centre in Bury St Edmunds into 45 homes. The shopping centre, which was home to stores such as New Look, JJB Sports, ETAM and Principles, closed down in 2016. <clears throat> A design and access statement submitted by Knightsborough Homes to West Suffolk Hospital Council sorry, said the opening of the ARC shopping centre and recession in 2008 had an impact on the decline of Cornhill Walk. The statement added, declining need in retail in, area, in the area gives an opportunity to change the use of the site to mixed use. Provision of residential units along with smaller numbers of, uh, number of better quality and visible retail spaces will revitalise the area. The plans include six townhouses, 37 flats, and a pair of three-bedroom semi-detached houses with associated car and cycle parking, 
bin storage and access. The revised plans come after a previous application that was submitted to West Suffolk Council in 2019 that included turning the outdated former shopping centre into shops, flats and a 24-hour gym were refused in 2021. The site in the Bury St Edmunds Town Centre conservation area and is also surrounded by a number of listed buildings in Brent Gobble Street, Well Street and Cornhill. People's shopping habits across Suffolk have changed because of the cost of living crisis and businesses are having to think more creatively to bring in customers. The Burris and Evans-based marketing company has outlined the sort of changes shops and other outlets, outlets are having to make to entice shoppers whose main focus has become cost. Due to the cost of living crisis, people still spend money, but in different, more affordable places, said Chloe Smith, the managing director of Toolbox Marketing, which works with the Ark Shopping Centre. Christmas 2022 was the first kind of normal Christmas in three years. There was definitely a hunger for people wanting experiences, bringing their kids to meet Santa, experience the magic of a Christmas market, or an illuminated light trail. We were able to be much more creative in our places. We are very happy to be able to create those really unique experiences to drive customers to shopping centres and make sure that physical shopping and online, online shopping can live in harmony together. Miss Keith added that the current challenge, the cost of living crisis, is very visible among the shoppers' choices. There is no way of avoiding the crisis. The real cost of living impact really hit people when they had to put on their had to put on their heating. They are still coming out to spend money, which is positive, but they are spending money in different places. When it comes to Bury St Edmunds, people who once may have gone to Hobbs or Jewels to buy a coat now go to more affordable shops like H&M or New Look. We know that January is going to be one of the toughest months of 2023 for not only retail, but also restaurants and leisure. Independent businesses are closing down because they just can't afford to pay the staff or keep the lights on. Toolbox Marketing was founded 12 years ago by the CEO, Michelle Buxton, being part of a bigger group and since November 21 has been operating on its own. Miss Keith said, in December 21, we were a team of eight. Now, in January 23, we are, there are 17 of us. Decorations from some of Bury St Edmunds Christmas trees are being returned to the schools that made them to make unique pieces of wall art. The community project, organised by Michelle Freeman of the Crafty Foxes and former Bury St Edmunds and Beyond chairperson Melanie Lesser, included trees on Angel Hill at St Edmund Cathedral, the Traverse and the Abbey Gardens being decorated. The Guildhall had trees with decorations from Guildhall Fiofment School on them and this week Michelle returned their pieces to the children. She said, It has been an honour to be involved in decorating the town's Christmas trees for a third year. I have received such wonderful feedback both in person and on social media from parents and visitors. I am also glad that we have been able to relove reuse and recycle the decorations and now enjoy them as a unique piece of artwork. A £20,000 donation from Tattersalls in Newmarket to West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock has been revealed in a new report.
report looking at MPs' additional earnings. Figures from Sky News and Tortoise Media Westminster Accounts Project show what donations, earnings, gifts and benefits MPs in Suffolk have received since December 2019. As well as a donation from Tattersall's, one of the main auctioneers of racehorses in the UK, Mr Hancock earned £4,740 from the Daily Mail newspaper. In total, the former Health Secretary has earned, has earned being donated or being gifted £157,100 since December the 19th, 2019. This is in addition to his salary as an MP. This compares to Bury St Edmunds MP Joe Churchill and South Suffolk MP James Cartledge, who have both declared nothing. A detailed breakdown can be found on the Sky News website. MPs have been approached for comment. A coffee shop that has become a support hub for the military community has seen its monthly breakfast club increase in popularity. The Bury St Edmunds branch of Combat 2 Coffee, that's with a number 2 in the centre, opened in the Constitutional Club in Guildhall Street in October 2021, since then has been supporting former and current military personnel's mental health and well-being. The coffee shop, which is open Tuesday to Saturday, also welcomes anyone from the wider community. Major Ian Robinson, who helped fundraise to open the branch and volunteers there, said they were over the moon with how the first year had gone with the monthly veterans breakfast club it hosts a notable success. Donated toasters were presented at the breakfast on Saturday, which now means toast can be also be served. The donation was from Wendy Hooten, a WRAC uh, veteran, Sue Simpson, a supporter of the WRAC and whose father served in Gallipoli, and Catherine Buchanan, a WRAC veteran and also served in the Territorial Army. Major Robinson, 54, reservist with 3rd Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment, said there was a real buzz at the veterans' breakfast, which were attended by 50 to 60 people. It's really, really popular, and there's a nice atmosphere, and that is something that has become a little bit wider than just veterans. They tend to bring their families in. It's quite a nice range. We might have people from the 80s right down to youngsters. We are really pleased with that aspect of what we do, and it helps us get the message out there more widely. We are open as a coffee shop, and you can come in whenever you want. Additionally, it's really had the benefit of connecting more veterans together. The coffee shop, which is also a warm hub, is somewhere people can have a chat and, if needed, be signposted to support. Major Robinson said he had become a support hub with an armed forces support group run by the NHS among those that meet there, and they were achieving their aim of helping people. We regularly get people feeding back. It's been a bit of a lifesaver for them to they so they have just a good place to pop in every now and then, and it's made their day a little bit brighter, he said. The aim now was to make sure people were aware the coffee shop was open for the wider community, he said, and they would like an increase in general footfall. Theatre Royal Bury St Edmunds is launching a new group for children aged 4 to 7 that are neurodivergent, learning disabled or identify as having other sensory needs. The renamed Sensory Youth Theatre already runs groups for children aged 8 to 12 and 13 to 18. 
founded by the Gee Whiz Charitable Foundation since 2021. The older age groups at the Century Youth Theatre have already achieved remarkable milestones. One parent whose child attends Century Youth Theatre said, Our child has had a wonderful time enjoying every session. Her self-confidence has grown with each week, so much so that during the warm-up she tries to lead the activity. She has become so relaxed that ear defenders are no longer needed during the sessions. Aileen Belsberg, Chief Executive Officer of GWIS, said the programme is unique and she will be excited to watch it grow in the years to come. She said, made possible by the Ed Sheeran, Made in Suffolk Legacy auction and many generous supporters, this project is a labour of love for all those involved. David Whitney, Theatre Royal's Head of Creative Learning, said, Sensory Youth Theatre is some of the most important work we deliver at the theatre. It's really vital that we provide accessible and inclusive created learning opportunities that are not elitist, that meet the participants' needs and the level they are currently working at. So many people flourish from a programme that is all about embracing people's differences. At the end of each year, Century Youth Theatre get to celebrate by watching a performance by another company, something David describes as a highlight. The new group for children aged four to seven will run at the theatre on Saturdays, starting at 10am. <coughs> a former dance studio is set to be converted into apartments under a new planning application. The Grade 2 listed building, 110 North Street in, in Bury St Edmunds, was formerly the home to Hazelwood Dance Studio. If the proposal is approved, the vacant building will become four self-contained apartments to include two one-bedroom and two two-bedroom units. A roof terrace and sitting room will also be added on the flat roof area of the building. According to the design statement, forming the new residential layouts does not change the footprint of the main building. The statement suggests that the proposed alterations and change of use will not have a detrimental effect on the listed building. Constructed in the mid-18th century, 110 Northgate Street was an extension to the original building and later converted to become the County Grammar School, College and Latterly Offices. Hazelwood Dance Studio was based in Northgate Street for 27 years before it moved to a new custom-made premises in Hollow Road in January 2022. The long-running multi-million pound project to install full fibre in Bury St Edmunds is due to be complete in the spring. It was confirmed this week. City Fibre said it had now laid enough full fibre in Suffolk to complete 850 laps at Newmarket's Rowley Mile course. Contractors have laid 1,725 kilometres of full fibre across Bury, Ipswich and Lurstoff as part of the £53 million investment to upgrade digital infrastructure. The Bury project is nearing completion, the company said this week. A City Fibre spokesman said, Our build teams are making fantastic progress. The Bury project is on track to be completed in the springtime. While our full fibre rollouts in Lowestoft and Ipswich are progressing at a pace. Once completed, the towns are set to become some of the best connected places in the country. NHS data has revealed that 47 patients were in West Suffolk Hospital with flu on Christmas Day, with four being cared for in critical care. Over the Christmas period, flu numbers peaked on December the 29th when 49 patients with the infection were being treated at the hospital in Bury St Edmunds. 
A month earlier, on November the 29th, the West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust had no patients with flu, with numbers starting to increase significantly from December the 19th. Flu numbers had dropped slightly by New Year's Day when the hospital was caring for 45 flu patients. On the 1st of January 2023, West Suffolk Hospital had 427 patients occupying general and acute beds with a capacity of 447. Bed occupancy rates at the Trust peaked on December 29th when the Trust was caring for 429 patients on general and acute wards. On November 29th, there were 399 of these patients showing the impact that flu had had on the Trust. West Suffolk Hospital NHS Foundation Trust has used its social media channels to encourage people to get their flu vaccinations. A traditional celebration to welcome in the beginning of the agricultural year was observed at St Edmundsby Cathedral at the weekend. Plough Sunday, the first Sunday of Epiphany, goes back to Victorian times, but there is much older observance associated with the first working day after the 12 days of Christmas, hence Plough Monday in some places. At the cathedral, a choral evensong service took place, which included prayers led by the agricultural chaplain, Graham Miles. Welcoming everyone to the cathedral, presenter the Reverend Canon Philip Banks said, The ancient custom of blessing the plough is the first of the agricultural festivals in the year. We look ahead to sowing and praying, blessing on our labours and the promise of harvest to come. Following the service, clergy and the choir led the congregation out of the cathedral to the Norman Tower, where the plough, provided by the Euston estate, was given its blessing. In the Middle Ages, ploughs were sometimes kept in the parish church, and some churches kept a plough light, a candle that burned over the plough throughout the winter. A woman from the Stone Market area said she feared she would end up in the court if it hadn't been for the help of citizens' advice in the town. Sky Thorpe first approached Mid-Suffolk uh, citizens' advice because she was having financial difficulties and getting really confused with complex personal independent payment forms. People are able to apply for these forms if they have long-term physical or mental health conditions, a disability, or if they struggle with getting around. Having failed one of the terrifying um, personal uh, independent payment forms um, assessments previously, Sky went to the volunteers at the Citizens Advice Office in Stowmarket for advice. She said, I wasn't dealing with it on my own with just a voice over the telephone or anything like that. I was able to come somewhere. I could be provided with a glass of water and tissues if I got upset. It's very diff- different being able to see someone in person than trying to do it all over the phone and it did make a really big difference. Volunteers at Mid-Suffolk Citizens Advice not only supported Sky with the forms, but they also managed to help her with the debt she was in. She explained, Without the Citizens Advice, I would have potentially end- ended up in court. I could have been in a very, very bad situation. I could have been homeless and in, in, in insignificantly more debt than I w- was already in. It is terrifying and lonely as well when you haven't got any support. The fact that there is an office locally available, so it is uh, very accessible to people, and is dis- disability accessible as well, is extremely vital. Roger Tyler, a volunteer advisor for Citizens Advice Miss Suffolk, said this year the cost of living had been a hot topic. 
He explained, The people that we see most were already struggling with finances and they have been hit the hardest. It's given us more work, but in many ways more opportunities to help. As a volunteer, it's rewarding to find someone you're able to help and see that some of the burdens have been lifted. Simon Clifton, Chief Officer at Citizens Advice Miss Suffolk, said, We are here for anyone who needs help to find a way forward. We can check if you're claiming everything you're entitled to, help you manage any debts, and make a referral for a food parcel. You can get in touch with Citizens Advice Miss Suffolk about support or volunteering via its website. The next step in the bid to get a cinema for Newmarket will be launched next month with a major event. The Newmarket Charitable Foundation, formed by local business leaders in 2021 to help create a thriving town, is working with the Jockey Club, exploring the feasibility of turning the former subscription rooms, once home to the National Horse Racing Museum, into a boutique cinema, in the style of the Abigate Cinema in Bury St Edmunds. The plans were showcased at an exhibition in the Memorial Hall early last year, with the idea being to renovate the historic building, to provide a picture house and cafe, as well as incorporating some space for business. The success of the project depends on securing substantial funding from various heritage funds, including the National Lottery, said Dr David Hall, Executive Director of the Foundation Charitable Oh, sorry, Executive Director of the Newmarket Charitable Foundation. The project is being run in partnership with the Abigate Cinema and anyone interested in getting involved in the feasibility study should email the Newmarket Charitable Foundation at cinema at newmarket dot... No, sorry, at cinema at newmarketcharity.org. Tributes have been paid to a leading businessman whose passion for life, houses and fine wine brought in many friends and colleagues. David Burr from Hartest was the man behind David Burr Estate Agents, which he founded in his dining room in 1995. He built the business up to now include nine offices, including Bury St Edmunds, Woolpit, Newmarket, Long Melford and Clare. Mr Burr died shortly before Christmas, aged 67. He had been diagnosed with lung cancer ten months earlier. His widow, Mary, said David had many hobbies including shooting, fishing, fine dining, sailing, his dogs and reading newspapers. But houses were always his passion. He knew people through their houses, even surprising a nurse in hospital with his knowledge of the visit of the village where she lived. He was always very caring and loyal. He made very strong friendships throughout his life, both in business and his personal life. A school in Bury St Edmunds has officially opened its newly refurbished £60,000 sports hall. Howard Community Academy opened its doors to its sports barn on Friday, with pupils and staff taking part in the celebration. The Academy's sports barn has been unused for the past couple of years, but since joining Anglian Learning in 2020, the school has been able to gradually refurbish the area. With support from the Trust and, and some additional funding, nearly £60,000 was invested into the barn's improvements. The revamped sports facility will be used to raise the profile of sports at the school, adding to the available large outside spaces and providing an increased range of opportunities and equipment. Alison Weir, head teacher at Howard Community Academy, said, We are delighted about the opening of our new sports barn. 
as part of our vision to be at the heart of the community, we are pleased to be able to grow and expand our offering for the benefit of both our existing and future pupils. This is just one of the many exciting developments taking place at the school since we joined Anglian Learning two years ago. We have been on a journey to achieve our Arts Mark Award, giving our pupils every opportunity to shine across the full breadth of subjects. The addition of the Sports Barn will play a key role in our drive to provide high quality learning and a wealth of opportunities to our pupils. It really is an exciting time to be part of the Howard Community Academy family. The Sports Barn will also allow the school to host local competitions and tournaments, allowing the community to access the facilities as well. A Brandon man who endured weeks without heating or hot water now fears running out of electricity credit after government energy money failed to be credited to his account. <clears throat> William Ross of Astor Court spent the Christmas period huddled in his sleeping bag due to no heating or hot water following repeated unsuccessful attempts to fit smart meters at his home. The 65-year-old was advised by energy supplier SSE to have a smart meter fitted, but the first four meters fitted were not compatible with the Economy 7 tariff Mr Ross relies on for his heating and hot water. As a result, he was unable to heat his property from December the 20th to January the 6th and was forced to use standard credit to heat water for washing, meaning every shower he took cost him around £3. Meanwhile, he was so cold he resorted to sitting in his home, wrapped in a sleeping bag over Christmas, and the property's walls were wet. Mr Ross said they put in the first metre in December, and it didn't work, with the duo tariff I'm on. I gave them a ring, and they sent an engineer out. After the fourth smart meter was, smart meter was installed, and it didn't work, I said, I can't live like this any longer. The engineer came back and put in one which worked, said Mr Ross. But by then, he feared mould was developing in his home. It was cold in the house for so long it started to smell musty, he said. Now I've been able to heat the place again, the damp is better. I can still smell it a bit, but that's because I had no heating at all for weeks. I have got the white hump about it all, he said. Now, although Mr Ross is able to heat his home again, he has not received the monthly £67 payment he is due through the government's energy bill support scheme, which should have been credited to his meter on January the 3rd. When I realised the money hadn't gone on, I rang SSE, but they just said they would send me a voucher when we have time. I know, I now down, I'm now down to the emergency credit, and when that goes, I'll have nothing at all. No heating, hot water or electricity. I asked them what I'm supposed to do. The whole idea of having the meter is so that they can add the credit remotely, said Mr Ross. SSE was approached for comment. Plan charge increases for garden waste collections in Baybra and Mid-Suffolk would see residents paying almost £70 to start and £60 to renew the service. The District Council Cabinets agreed to include new fees and charges in their draft budgets this week though the decisions will have to be ratified by full council. Councillor John Whitehead, Mid-Suffolk Cabinet Member for Finance, said the money that comes from these fees and charges is vital income for the council. We want the services involved to be self-funding. A new subscription for garden waste collection would increase by £9.50 in Mid-Suffolk and £7 in Baybra, resulting in a cost of £69 for both districts. 
The cost of renewing a subscription would increase to £59 for both councils, an uplift of £4.50 for Mid-Suffolk and £2 for Baybrook customers. Replacing missing bins and new sets of bins would increase to £41.25 and £69 respectively. Although, although the vote in favour was unanimous by both cabinets, councillors in both questioned the cost of collection for bulky items. This would increase by £4.50 across Baybra and Mid-Suffolk under the plans, causing residents in both to pay £49.50. Council, Baybra councillor Jan Osborne said, I have been advocating for some time that the charges for bulky items is too much. We are all aware of the huge problems we have in Baybra with domestic fly-tipping. A family festival that celebrates local and regional produce returns this summer and is now looking for traders who would like to take part in the event. The Stone Market Food and Drink Festival will take place on July the 2nd and will showcase a wide range of food and drink to choose from, including produce stalls, street food, pop-up bars and sweet treats. The organiser, Stone Market Town Council, has recently opened applications for traders who would like to present their products. We invite all local and regional businesses to apply to be part of the fantastic day, which celebrates the very best food and drink from our region, a spokesman said. This year, the festival will be held on Sunday, July the 2nd in Stowmarket Town Centre and promises a great day out for families and foodies alike. Due to the high demand in applications, not everyone will be offered a pitch at the festival. And now we turn to our popular letter section. The first letter is from Michael Mikchatlak via email and is titled Hunting is a stain on the countryside. There is nothing more sickening than the sight of the rich at play in their scarlet coats following a pack of baying hounds or the cheering hunt supporters clapping and waving like flies drawn to an open cesspit. Oh, how these people long for a return to the thrill of chasing and tearing to pieces an exhausted, terrified fox. Or the joy of watching terrier men dig out some wretched creature before throwing it squealing to the waiting hounds. The Tories will do nothing to wipe this stain from the countryside, once and for all, for fear of upsetting their wealthy donors in the hunting shires. So, despite a ban on the killing, far from prying eyes, the slaughter continues unabated. Amidst, amid, amidst the food banks and poverty, there is a section of society whose idea of a perfect day is butchering defenceless animals to whom the pain and suffering they cause is of little consequence. Writing in reply, P. Cornwall of Berries and Edmunds says... Hunting not all about killing foxes. In reference to Mr. Mikolek's letter, Journal January the 5th, not all people who hunt come from a rich background. I come from a working-class family in the days you left school on a Friday and started work on a Monday. <laughs> I hunted 14 seasons of horses, uh, horses that was unhappily racing and lived for his hunting. It was a privilege to ride over some fantastic countryside and was not all about killing foxes. Izzy, presumably with the horse, lived to the great age of 31, and when his time came, the hunt put him down with dignity and his carcass was recycled. What Mr Micolette does not realise is that the majority of us are horse lovers. It's not your background that matters, it's how you conduct yourself and ride. 
Um, Ian Smith of Bryson Edmonds writes, humans meant to be vegetarian. Once again, G. Coleman writes in to criticise Eliza um, Allen in her attempt to persuade readers to try veganism. And this refers to actually an argument around veganism in the East Anglian Daily Times of the 4th of January. And she goes on, I personally believe CG's current missive also uses unsound arguments regarding mankind's biological history and dietary past in order to downplay veganism. I do not agree with the comment that humans have had an inflated four million years of human evolution as omnivores. GC is entitled to his religious belief of evolution. However, the Bible clearly tells us that we were originally created to be vegetarians. A study into the comparisons of the various digestive tract anatomies, human and non-human, is very interesting and, in my opinion, is evidence of an awesome creator. Exactly why and when humans began to eat animal flesh is also recorded. Food for thought. Mm-hmm. Well, on a very different note, Linda Mudd of Stowmarket writes about a fabulous evening of music and song. I went to the Ipswich Corn Exchange on Saturday evening, January the 7th, to watch Tryannan Orchestra and Choir present Lights, Camera, Action. What an enjoyable concert it was, from Handel's Hallelujah, John Williams' Star Wars and James, Bond's, uh, James Bond medley. Wow, that was just the first half, with an interval of 20 minutes during which a very welcome ice cream was enjoyed. Lights went down again, I settled, awaiting the arrival of lead violinist Steve Brown, closely followed by Emeritus Professor Chris Green, OBE, to whom the audience gave a rapturous applause. Batten at the ready, Chris gave the signal, and we heard the overture to Beauty and the Beast. The next set in the programme was entitled Come Dance With Us. Right from the start, I could have danced all night to the finish of Barnacle Bill, which, if you didn't know, is the theme music to Blue Peter. My feet didn't stop moving. I smiled, and as I looked around, I could see several feet tapping away. The close of the concert had the choir singing the music of MGM musicals from Over the Rainbow. I'm singing in the rain. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Merry Widow Waltz stepping up with my baby. Bless your beautiful hide. And finally, another rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. A big well done to the choir and orchestra for such an enjoyable evening of music and song. Lastly, my praise goes to Chris Green, who conducted and kept them all in tune. As a choir singer myself, I noted that all eyes were on the person wielding the little white stick. There now follows a series of letters concerning the NHS. The first is from Bob Hogger of Halesworth, and he says, Wonders of the NHS. I would like to follow the excellent letter from Audrey Naylor, and that was written in the East Anglian Daily Times on the 7th of January. During the last war, when I was quite young, seven maybe, before the NHS came into being, I contracted spinal meningitis, which mostly mostly caused death or brain damage. The surgeon, doctor at the hospital, was a doctor, Mr Mackenzie, who then operated on my ear and told my mother I was, and she repeated often, now in God's hands, as there was nothing more that could be done. My mother then mentioned it was a pity, as she had earlier taken out some private health insurance for the family, with a weekly contribution. Whereupon he said, well, that's different. 
there's a new medicine now being tried out called penicillin, which is having much success on soldiers' wounds, and this, and this could maybe help. He sent to London, and a prescription was dispatched and administered to me. I think and can say I was very lucky, a very lucky early beneficiary of penicillin, because within days I began to recover, so I was told. So, before the NHS, it was very much everybody was on their own. Thereafter, the NHS began to impact the recovery of many sick people who would in all probability have died before. Many years later, I was called up for National Military Service. There, the much older Dr Mackenzie, partly retired, did the medical inspection on our ears and remembered from my notes the occasion he had operated. This created much interest as other doctors gathered around to peer into my ear to admire his earlier work. I was then passed A1 fit. That was a long time ago, but now for me, many thanks to the late Dr. Mr. Mackenzie. In a similar vein, praise should be heaped on NHS. In these very difficult times with the NHS under huge stress and subject to continual criticism, I must heap enormous praise on the staff of West Suffolk Hospital and on the local ambulance service. I awoke on New Year's Eve desperately gasping for breath and feeling as if I was drowning. A test showed I was Covid positive and an emergency call brought an ambulance within 20 minutes, staffed by two highly efficient and caring female crew who, after a few checks, took me straight to West Suffolk Hospital and almost instantly I was found a bed in the new Majors Assessment Unit. This is a superb unit of 12 spotless single rooms where I was again checked for Covid and a chest infection and given antibiotics which had a remarkable effect. After a short day's stay I was found a bed in a Covid bay of Ward G7 where I stayed for a further four days being treated by the frantically busy but resilient, cheerful and efficient staff. I'm sure that the speed with which I was treated contributed to a rapid improvement in my health and enabled me to be sent home, still very weak, but hugely grateful for the excellent care I had been given. God bless the West Suffolk Hospital. And, as if that was not enough, my wife has been in West Suffolk Hospital since December the 22nd, with a serious chest, chest infection, and now with Covid. She has just been given a superb single respiratory therapy room in the new G10 ward. The NHS is still there when we really need them. Criticise if you must, but praise should be heaped on these wonderful people. Um, my next letter is full of praise as well. And it's from Kev Gort, and he says, I have nothing but praise for the NHS. Sadly, my wife passed away recently, and through the very, very free press, I would like to express my eternal gratitude and thanks to all involved at the NHS. The NHS often receives bad press, but my recent experience in the Eastern Region is nothing but praise. From diagnosis at Addenbrooke's Patworth, from, sorry, from diagnosis at Addenbrooke's Patworth Hospital, until her final days in West Suffolk Hospital, the care, compassion, and support was outstanding. In no particular order, I would sincerely like to thank the following: the Messalian Williams Group, all the staff and consultants at Addenbrooke's Hospital the coroner's office, Mediquip, British Oxygen Company, and at West Suffolk Hospital, the doctors, nurses, volunteers, hospice support, catering staff and the cleaners, in particular Ward G1. 
Finally, my sincere thanks go out to the doctors and nurses who did home visits and the truly inspirational and compassionate young carers who carried out unimaginable tasks with the utmost dignity. Thank you all again. A further comment on NHS is NHS problems there before COVID. The Prime Minister and his ministers keep trying to spin the NHS problems down to COVID. What country do they actually live in? Because if they lived in the UK, reality should tell them that the NHS was in great difficulty before COVID. COVID just made a bad situation worse, but most of the ministers would not know. They probably have private health care. Another issue that seems to be growing, not with just Conservative MPs, is that people should work for longer. Bearing in mind MPs have lots of time off throughout the year, why do they not think that working people who work hard throughout their lives paying taxes, should not retire if they wish and have an easier life. D. Chrysal, or Chrysal, from Newmarket. Uh, Suffolk's heritage is examined in this feature from the East Anglian Daily Times as it asks the question, where are traces of the Victorians to be found in Suffolk? A much-written-about historical period, the Victorian era, heralded great change across the United Kingdom. The Victorian age, 1837 to 1901, remained synonymous with the Industrial Revolution and saw vast technological improvements sweep the globe, as well as great changes in the political and social spheres. One of the most memorable historic souvenirs left behind in Suffolk are some of the county's peers. As laws came into force and people began taking more time off, thanks to the legislation such as the 1871 Bank Holiday Act, one popular type of break was the British seaside getaway. And Suffolk has its fair share of resorts that are still popular in the 21st century. The archetypal uh, British pier was a mainstay of Victorian leisure culture, with two of our county structures tracing their roots back to the 19th century. Lowestoft South Pier dates back to 1846 and measures an impressive 1,320 feet, thanks to engineer William Cubitt. When first opened, it was described as one of the finest and most extensive promenades on the coast, combined with marine views of the greatest variety and beauty. Slightly further down the coast is Southwold Pier, constructed in 1900 by W. Jeffrey. Originally measuring 810 feet, it was built as a landing stage for the Bell steamships that travelled from London Bridge. And, if you're wondering why Felixstowe Pier isn't mentioned, that's because it didn't open until 1905 and therefore, and is therefore actually part of Edwardian rather than Victorian England. But Felixstowe does proudly claim some Victorian seaside heritage, thanks to its wonderfully colourful beach huts that date back to the 19th century. Forty-four of them were once dotted along the town's spa pavilion, tracing their roots back to 1834, meaning they are likely to be the oldest in the country and the second oldest in the world. However, at the end of last year, the beach huts were moved and relocated from their famed spot due to coastal erosion. During the Victorian era, one of Suffolk's biggest, biggest and proudest exports was also established, Adnams, the world-famous brewery, um, was founded in 1872 
after brothers George and Ernest Adams purchased Southwold Sol Bay Brewery. In the centuries since its inception, Adams has gone on to produce a variety of well-loved beers, ales, ciders, and even wine and spirits now. And of course, who could forget the East Anglian Daily Times? The paper was first published on October thirteenth, 1874, incorporating the Ipswich Express. Over in Bury St Edmunds, evidence of, it, of Victorian legacy can be seen to this day, thanks to a stained-glass window that Queen Victoria had fitted in St Mary's Church in order to commemorate Mary, Mary Tudor, Tudor sorry, Queen of France's death after her internment. And, if it's impressive 19th-century architecture you're after, look no further than Bury St Edmunds Railway Station, which was designed by famed architect Frederick Barnes and formally inaugurated in November 1847. The Red Brick Station building is Grade Two listed, as is the semi-elliptical Bridge Arch Bridge over Northgate Road, which lies to the east of the station. Other impressive structures that Barnes designed during the Victorian period include the Old Town Hall in Needham Market, Woodbridge Railway Station and the Wesleyan Methodist Church on Ipswich Museum Street. One of my personal favourite remnants of Victorian England in Suffolk, however, has to be Snape Maltings. Construction began on the complex in 1846 after industrial Entrepreneur Newson Garrett purchased the busy Snape Bridge shopping port five years prior. Throughout the 19th century, Snape buildings expanded as the demand for malt barley increased. This part of Suffolk thrived so much, a purpose-built branch of the East Suffolk Railway line was constructed, with trains running three times a day between 1859 and 1960. At its industrial peak, it was compromised, comprised sorry, of seven acres worth of buildings and was one of the largest flat floor mil maltings in England. However, industrial activity ceased at Snape Maltings in 1965. Today, Snape Maltings is best known for its prestigious concert hall and home to the annual Albrough Festival, founded by composer Benjamin Britten, singer Peter Pears and librettist and producer Eric Crozier. Martin Newell advocates that we measure your wealth by how little you owe in this opinion piece. A good few months ago, I wrote a tongue-in-cheek health guide for these pages. I reasoned that since so many peop other people seem to be at it, why shouldn't I give it a go? However, during the writing of my piece, nobody was more surprised than I was to realise that over the course of my life, I'd actually accidentally picked up some genuine common sense. It being past New Year, therefore, with many of us gloomily auditing our financial and physical well-being accounts, maybe it's time for me to pass on further lessons which the fleeting years have delivered. Firstly, measure your wealth not by how much you own, but by how little you owe. This idea came to me via Mr Micawber, a Dickens character drawn from the novel David Copperfield. He advised annual income £20, annual expenditure £19.19 and six. Result? Happiness. Annual income £20, annual expenditure £20, naught and sixpence. Result? Misery. How true, he said. Conversely, an earlier, more bohemian life taught me that small luxuries during lean times are more essential than many necessities. 
In the mid-1970s, I shared a garden flat with a girlfriend. I washed dishes by day and sang in a struggling rock band by night. The girlfriend, quite understandably, said certain heartless onlookers moved out, leaving me to pay the rent. I managed it, but with hardly any money to spare. For some weeks I was skint, so, part, so I partly lived off the leftovers at the restaurant where I worked. At weekends, a kindly chef donated a few bits and pieces from his larder, deeming them fit to eat, if not to serve to the public. I also bought a sack of potatoes from a farm shop and baked them with various improve, improvised fillings. I stopped going to pubs and I learnt to brew beer. I charmed drinks off audience members at gigs. And at the end of each week, however, I bought a pop, pot of English honey to have in my tea and a bottle of martini to offer guests. I never used the central heating. Instead, I drank martini, smoked roll-ups, and huddled over a one-bar gas fire in a defiant two-fingered salute to penury. In that age of quarterly fuel bills, I became curious to know exactly how much gas and electricity I was using, so I studied the metres during a cold snap, calculating that my erstwhile girlfriend and I had been using a total of, don't laugh, around three quid a week. I took to saving the tips from my washing-up job in an old tobacco pouch. They didn't always completely cover the fuel bills, but it took the sting out of them so that I lived to fight another day. For improving the mind, when skint, you soon learn that certain items are expensive to buy new, yet incredibly cheap to buy pre-enjoyed. Books, for instance. You can go into a second-hand bookshop and take away a couple of planets of wisdom and entertainment for practically nothing. It's now well acknowledged that about 30 minutes of fresh air and natural light each day will benefit you physically and mentally too. But did you know that there exists an ancient revolutionary therapy which will help you access this state of well-being? You won't even need a gym. Unbelievably, it's free. It's called a brisk walk. Cooking at home is physically and financially healthier for you than eating out or buying takeaways. Try cooking two main course meals together. Eat one and refrigerate the other. You only need to use the same amount of fuel as you'd use for one main meal. Snap up bargains. Amazingly, tinned and frozen fruit and veg are just as good for you as fresh fruit and veg. There's also less susceptible to pathogens. Vegan? Well, baked beans on toast is a vegan meal. Red beans, celery and rice is another one. There you are then. Eat each meal once a week and you'll save money, as well as being able to tell that smug nutrition evangelist of course, I always eat vegan at least twice a week. <laughs> vegetarian? Well, then, tinned tomatoes on toast with cheese grated over them makes a simple and thrifty vegetarian meal. Some of these selections may sound a little sackcloth and ashes, but they can be glitzed up with herbs and spices. Dried herbs and spices, by the way, are cheaper and longer-lasting than the fresh variety, despite what all of them London media foodies may tell you. Dried herbs, used properly, will still do the job. Food and eating of food, food and the eating of it have become rather politicised of late. In our current lean times, the chief requirements are that meals be nutritious and cheap. The fun bit is getting them to taste nice too. A merry January. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, the East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and the Newmarket Journal, from whom's pages most of our items have been taken.
News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Sheila, Roger, Rob and Chris, it's goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.